Hello everyone, Alan Vischer here from Vitality Explorers. Please sign up at vitalityexplorers.com for free information about how to enhance your physical, mental, social, and or spiritual well-being. So as we always do on Vitality Explorer News, let's start off with a quote, and this is from somebody named Unknown. All right, so here it is, quote, life is a one-time offer, use it well. Life is a one-time offer, use it well. So this week on Vitality Explorer News, we're going to cover three topics. And the three topics are number one, how or what can we learn from Queen Elizabeth's amazing long life? Now, she just recently passed away and there's been long lines waiting to see her as she lays in state uh, in, in, in London. And I think there's many things we can learn from her. The second, second thing we're going to talk about are, is can not one, but can two apples a day help keep the doctor away. And the final thing we're going to do is begin a new series on a deep dive. And the deep dive is going to be this time into how can sleep be considered a superpower. So if you're enjoying this Vitality Explorer News podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you find your podcasts. And please share this with a friend. Our goal here with Vitality Explorer News, our mission, our purpose is to enhance global vitality one person at a time. So at least one person out there listening has their vitality enhanced and maybe is a little bit more like Queen Elizabeth. So let's talk about the amazing queen and long live the queen, all right? And, um, she did indeed live a very long life. She lived to 96, and I think this is a crucial thing to talk about. And the information here you're gonna listen to or see on YouTube Today is also up on the Vitality Explorer News Substack site, so you can look at some of the graphs, or I'll put some, uh, some, you know, some of the graphs up here later in the in the video. But she was pretty amazing. She was born in the 1920s, and if you look at life expectancy for women and/or men at that time, the average life expectancy for somebody born in the in the 20s was to live to about 60 years old. So she obviously outlived that by a mile, uh, living to 96. And I think we can study a little bit about what and how she got there. So here, here are some thoughts I have about how Queen Elizabeth uh, really lived a long and meaningful life. And let's start with that first one, meaning. And I think that's a crucial component to people living long and living well, and that is to have meaning. So she had a profound sense of purpose. She really dedicated her life uh, to the United Kingdom and to her country and enjoyed and really took her royal duties and serving her country um, very seriously. So that strong sense of purpose and resilience, I think, also was very helpful. She also had close and meaningful connections with not just her friends, uh, excuse me, not just with her family, but with friends and also with other um, people all around the world. And here's the interesting part is yes, she had a lot of resources. So I think we can't discount the fact that obviously Queen Elizabeth was very rich. She had access to amazing health care, and that should not be discounted in terms of the, um, the amount of resources she had to help her stay vital. But she also made some really amazing choices. And you can look for the references from this on this Vitality Explorer News Substack site. But according to multiple references, she tried to sleep 8.5 hours a day. All right, so she considered sleep a superpower, which is we're going to talk about that uh, a little later. 
Um, the second thing is she really liked to get out into nature with her beloved corgis, but also horseback riding. So she exercised, or at least she liked to get out and move around outside. Now that's, we've talked about this many times on Vitality Explorers and Vitality Explorer News, that getting out in nature, getting some exercise is crucial to your long-term well-being. Here's the other thing. She was a queen, right? She could eat whatever she wanted, but she ate mainly vegetables and then lean meats, okay? And she ate modestly or moderately. She did not pig out all the time, okay? The other thing she did, uh, she kept her mind really sharp. So she wanted to be up to date on things. She read a lot and she she also had something that's very important to your longevity and long and well-being. And that is she had an optimistic and resilient attitude or mind or mindset. So she obviously was on the crown for I think 70 years and she saw a lot of different things. She, she saw lots of ups and downs for, for England and the United Kingdom, but she kept her, well, what do they call it in England? The stiff upper lip, right? But she was also optimistic. And of course, there's other components to why she probably lived long, and one of them was probably she had good genes, or maybe very good genes. And here's the interesting final little piece of nugget that, she, that I found online about how or maybe why she lived for such a long period of time. And that is, is that she didn't smoke and she only drank moderately. Now here's the, here's the funny part, is apparently the queen drank one Dubonnet cocktail every night for 50 years, okay? And I had to look up what was in a Dubonnet cocktail uh, and uh, it consists, at least the, the uh, queen's version of it consists of 1.5 ounces of the finest gin you can find. And according to some sources, it had to be uh, the beef eater uh, gin, of course. And then 0.75 or three quarters of an ounce of Dubonnet Rouge. Okay, and that's just basically red wine that's been fortified with quinine. So it's gin and fortified red wine. Uh, and then you can add a lemon peel or an orange peel. But apparently the queen had one of these, just one. Uh, every day for 50 years. So I'm, I'm going to look into whether a Dubonnet cocktail is really a valuable thing to enhance your longevity. Uh, but long live the queen, long live her memory, and thank you for uh, giving us an example of a, a very uh, amazing life well lived. So what the next thing we're going to talk about is, is, you know, similar to the queen, what else can we do? And this has to do with these two things right here. And these two, ooh, there we go. Take them off my face. Uh, what they really are are gala apples. Okay, so a gala apple is a very interesting thing. And, and maybe not one, but two apples a day has some significant data to suggest that it could be valuable to help keep the doctor away. And I'm going to go over two specific studies uh, in our discussion today. And, and the two papers are, you know, the conclusions are pretty amazing. So I'll start with the conclusions and then I'll work backwards. Here's the first one. And I'm going to read this. Six-week daily whole apple consumption, gala apple consumption, uh, may be an effective dietary strategy to mitigate the obesity-associated inflammation that exacerbates cardiovascular disease uh, but does not result in weight loss. So the first study, you know, was, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it. The second study, uh, here's the conclusions. The data support beneficial uh, hypercholesterolemic, meaning decreasing your cholesterol, the daily consumption of uh, apples by mildly hypercholesterolemic 
patients or individuals. So big fancy words to basically say that if you have high cholesterol, a couple apples a day might help you decrease your cholesterol. So let's dive into the details because I think the details are kind of interesting. Um, but first we need to understand a little chemistry here. And apples are one of the many foods that have polyphenols in them. All right, now, <laughs> for those of you who are afraid of chemistry, don't worry, it's not gonna be very painful. But I, I, think, I think it's important to understand that these polyphenols are in a lot of different and actually quite tasty foods. And let me just read you a little list of them. You can see a graphic up on the Vitality Explorer News Substack site, but it's not just apples, berries, black and green olives, cloves, dark chocolate, love that, uh, flaxseed meal, soybeans, spinach, sweet cherries, and almonds. So pick from one of those, right? There's lots of different things you can choose from that have these pretty important compounds in them. And polyphenol, poly just means many, and phenol is just a chemical structure. And again, there's a, there's a picture of what this structure looks like on the Substack site, but they have several, these polyphenols have several positive um, you know, effects on your health, including lowering your cholesterol and blocking inflammatory responses. So instead of taking things like, you know, Motrin, Advil, Leave, or something like that, there's naturally occurring foods that can decrease your cholesterol and decrease your inflammation. And, and what, they, what they also are, are an excellent form of fiber, which can help your, with your absorption in your gut and your gut microbiome. And the gut microbiome is just you know, the trillions of bacteria that live inside your gut and are very, very important. And both of these studies came from the American Journal of um, Clinical Nutrition. And here's a little more of the details from the first one. Uh, I'll read a little bit of this. Gala apples in overweight and, adult, uh, and obese adults, that's what they did. Uh, they found that they had lower levels of CRP and IL-6. And those are two markers of, of blood inflammation after six weeks of consumption of um, essentially... Uh, two gala apples per day, all right? And they're about this size, all right? Uh, I had to actually look up in the, in, the, in the grocery store. It seems like there's so many different versions of apples these days, but they're quite tasty, very crisp, and awesome. And guess what? Uh, maybe, I don't know if it applies to everybody who's maybe normal weight, um, but with 70 plus percent of people overweight or obese in the United States, if you're gonna choose to have a little snack, maybe an apple will be a good one because it can decrease your inflammation, at least according to this study. Um, they also looked at something called your total antioxidant capacity, or TAC, and they found that the group that ate the Gala apples had a um, higher level of total antioxidants. So there's antioxidants, which are also good for you. The second paper focused mainly on people who had mildly elevated cholesterol. So the first paper focused on people who were uh, overweight or obese. The second uh, focused on people who had mildly elevated cholesterol, which is a ton of us, okay? Um, and what they found is that the people who ate two apples a day, okay, these were just a little bit different type of apple, and I'll go into that in a second. I think I have it listed here. But they found that the two, um, that they had decreased cholesterol overall after, I think, about an eight-week time frame. And it was pretty impressively statistically significant of 0.006 for LDL cholesterol, um, and excuse me for total cholesterol and 0.031 for LDL cholesterol. Those are the two ones that are important. Um, I think these two studies together help suggest that eating not one, but maybe two apples a day uh, can help keep the doctor away. Uh, and it's especially true for people who are overweight um, or, um, or obese, all right? So I think if you look at the Vitality Explorer News Substack site, you can see the references, you can see the actual abstracts and, and, and some of the graphs. 
um, from these two studies, but uh, maybe maybe the queen had a couple apples a day too. That helped her recovery going along. I didn't see any data from that, but I would I would think that maybe she would enjoy an apple. At least I'd like to think she would. Now the final thing we're going to do is to start this new thing called a deep dive. And we're starting with sleep on purpose because sleep is a very, very important component of your vitality. And before we get into that, I wanna, I wanna discuss this kind of funny story about how I came up with sleep as a superpower, sort of this little tagline I use in my classes. And it comes from reading uh, The Born Identity. And The Born Identity was a, a book before it became a movie series um, uh, written by Robert Ludlum. And back when I was in college and med school, and uh, the brief times I had to, to kind of get away from uh, hardcore studying, I would, I would read uh, Robert Ludlum novels, which are really fun. They were really, really detailed, really, you know, page turners. And one of them, the very first one that I really loved was called The Born Identity. I think there's probably 20 of them now. Uh, and even though Robert Ludlum has passed away, they're still publishing it under a pseudonym or a ghostwriter now. But Robert Ludlum's character, Jason Bourne, uh, in the first book was trained somewhere, I think in Asia, by one of his senseis about how to be a, an amazing operative. And um, they're in the jungle and the, the sensei says to Jason, Jason Bourne, you need to go to sleep because sleep is a weapon, all right? So when, when I was in med school, my buddies and I used to say to each other, we're gonna go to sleep. We're actually gonna try to get some rest before our tests, as opposed to trying to stay up all night. And we say to each other, sleep is a weapon. Now the data for, for, for sleep being helpful for, for your brain and for the rest of your body is amazing now. Um, and I, I think we should take, take a, just a pause for a second before we go into some of the data and, and go into what actually is sleep and why do we sleep? And I think it's a really weird thing, right? Let's just go into this. I'm gonna read a little bit about this because uh, I'm still actually baffled as to why we sleep. But here's what researchers have, have described as why sleep is mandatory. Right? Think about it. Almost all or all animals, including, you know, dolphins and whales sleep. All right. But here's some theories behind why we sleep. All right. Number one um, is it restores function. So it allows the body to relax, repair itself. The second is the sort of the brain plasticity theory. And that is that sleep is required to help wire and or rewire the brain and, and helps us learn. So that's maybe why I thought sleep was a weapon. I read that early on and also loved it in the books. But newly published data suggests that sleep helps the brain kind of flush out stuff. So it's sort of like you're clearing the cookies in your head, if you will, by, uh, by sleeping. Um, and the third is the energy conservation theory. And that is that we literally burn less calories when we're asleep and that it allows us to decrease the need for searching or finding and consuming food. Um, here's my, my take on this is that I'm really still not sure why we sleep. And I think we need a fundamental breakthrough um, as to why we sleep. Um, and it's going to take somebody who's really thought of a crazy idea. Because I think some of these, some of these uh, uh, scientific research theories have data to support them, but there's still a lot of interesting things about it that are completely unknown about sleep. Uh, and not all sleep is the same, all right? So there are many stages to sleep. Clinicians and researchers have studied it for a long period of time and um, you know, nobody has really identified the actual optimal number of hours we can sleep. I think it's partially related to your genes and some other things that are in your head and control it. But here's a suggestion I have about trying to identify your optimal numbers, number of hours per sleep, is if you can, 
for a week somewhere, maybe you have to be on vacation or something, um, where you just don't set your alarm and you, you try to go to sleep and then you wake up when you wake up and see what that is. See when you actually feel refreshed. I found my optimal number of sleep to be somewhere between seven and seven and a half hours per night. Um, you know, there's a, a wide range. Very, very few people, however, can sleep less than two or three or four hours at night and actually be functional. So um, seven to nine, somewhere in there is the typical range. So there's also this concept of two, two sleep times, all right? Uh, this really helped me when I was worried about, say, getting up in the middle of the night. Um, once I would feel like, oh my God, how do, why do I have to get up in the middle of the night? Well, it turns out that prior to electricity being introduced in the 1800s, people slept about four hours, got up, stoked the fire, did something around the house, uh, and then slept for another four hours. And there's lots and lots of published historical data to support that. Over 500 references were found by one resource I found that talk about what's called segmented sleep. So I think the idea is just don't shame yourself if you can't sleep for six, seven, eight straight hours. Understand that that's not unusual. All right. And then all of us also need to understand why we sleep well and why we don't sleep well. Now, there's a lot of trackers. People can track it on a, a, you know, a handheld device or even on a watch. Um, most of these trackers are trying to tell you how much you deep sleep or even your mattress on your, on your bed. Lots and lots of different ways to do this. But what I found is that the data on that is really not robust. All right, so the data on sleep trackers uh, is not as good as people would like it to be. Now, some of them have better than others. Uh, and they're constantly evolving. But here's my suggestion, is just to use a sleep diary. And a sleep diary is just like, okay, what time did I try to go to sleep and turn the lights up? What time did I get up? Okay, you may not have slept the entire time, but that's your total quote unquote sleep time, right? Uh, and then you can give yourself a rating from zero to 10, right? And you kind of know intuitively, did you sleep well or did you not sleep well? And then give yourself some commentary for a week about how you slept. Now, you may have had something go on in your relationship with other people at work. Maybe you have something physically wrong with you that interferes with your ability to sleep, but just write that down. It, it, within a week, and this is actually you know, validated way to understand how well you sleep, within a week or so, you're gonna be able to potentially identify a pattern um, of what's going on. We'll talk much more about how to optimize your sleep in a future post, uh, but today I think it's important that for us to understand how, um, how terrible it is for us not to sleep well. Um, our physical and our mental well-being is, is t very closely connected to sleep. And I think sleep is the foundational component of our physical and mental well-being. Um, a lot of people think they can pay back like a sleep debt if they've you know, not been sleeping. And there's some evidence to suggest that, but more evidence to suggest that you can't completely pay it back. Um, and it's also, poor sleep is also associated with poor or impaired athletic and academic performance. And that's what we're gonna focus on for the rest of this podcast. And you can see uh, some of the references, again, to the data on the Vitality Explorer new Substack site. Um, and you'll also have access uh, to the Vitality Explorer new Sleep Diary worksheet if you go there. All right, so, um, you know, what, what, is the, what is the most interesting thing about athletic performance? And I just wanna read you some, some of the peer-reviewed published data about how poor sleep in, in impairs athletic performance. And there's a reason why people like 
Tom Brady and Serena Williams and Roger Federer. Now they're all, um, maybe uh, Tom Brady's still playing, but Serena Williams and Roger Federer just recently retired. But they, they've had an, a, a crazy long run. And part of it is because they considered sleep a superpower. Now let's look into the data as to why that's valuable for athletic performance. So I'm gonna to read to you. Um, so there's inhibited ability in a study of male uh, team sport athletes who were sleeping deprived, they had lower uh, average sprint times. Okay, so their, their ability to run fast decreased. There's decreased accuracy in female tennis and male tennis players in terms of their serve up to 53%, okay, if they slept badly. There's quicker exhaustion in male runners and volleyball players, and there's decreased reaction time adversely affecting uh, a group of male collegiate athletes. And there's also difficulty with executive functioning and learning, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in the context of academic performance in a moment. But past things like even just passing the ball uh, or getting yourself to the net. Also, very interestingly, increased risk of injury in people who don't sleep well, and then increased risk for getting sick or getting a cold. All right, so that's, that's pretty powerful evidence to consider. I call it binging on a, a legal performance enhancing drug called sleep. So if you're an athlete out there, make sure you get your sleep because that's really connected to your performance. If you're a student out there, sleep is also connected to your performance. And, and many people think that maybe pulling an all-nighter is a good idea to cram in as much information as possible. As I told you earlier, I, I considered sleep a superpower early on and tried to get as much sleep as possible uh, the night before a test. Now I would cram and study and study and study up to maybe 11 or 12 o'clock at night before the test and then try to go to bed because I realized I wasn't going to get a lot better by staying up and not sleeping well. And this is actually, uh, you know, borne out in some data. Um, and, and here's some interesting things is that sleep patterns accounted for uh, nearly 25% of the variance in overall academic performance. And, and what's, what's crucial about what's going on is we've been sleeping less. So Americans are sleeping less and less over, over the last you know, 15 to 20 years. And here's some interesting data I'm going to read from this. Almost 33% uh, report sleeping less than six hours per night. Uh, and that's a really pretty staggering statistic. Remember I said that very many people, maybe less than three or 4% can actually sleep less than six hours a night functionally. Um, but when you look at from 2004, this is age-adjusted self-reported sleep duration from 2004 to 2017 in, in patients, or excuse me, in, in adults 18 to 84. So at that time frame, um, the people who were sleeping uh, less than six hours was 28%. Now it's up to 33%. So it's, it's increasing uh, over time. And, and this short duration uh, is associated, short duration being less than seven hours, quote, is associated with obesity, decreasing cognitive function, dementia, heart disease, diabetes, and mortality, right? So sleeping less than seven hours a night is associated with all of those bad things, including possibly dying. So I think we need to we need to put a nail in the coffin of uh, sleep and cognition. And there's a specific article I want to talk about to kind of finish up our talk today, and that is, um, in, in they used a, a phone app to to look at various components of cognitive functioning in two minute tests. So it's kind of an interesting study of 181 subjects. They were randomized into two groups. They were one was sleeping eight or nine hours a night for three straight days, and the other was kept up all night. So this is sort of the eight or nine hours or the all-nighter, okay? And then on the fifth day, uh, they 
use this use this phone app to imagine, to evaluate their cognition and and so their ability their ability to you know problem solve or their probability of making a mistake or their response times both were way down in the patients or excuse me in the subjects who were sleep deprived and the interesting part about also making a mistake this is obvious right but the data is very powerful and they did this using an app and it was very difficult sometimes to control for mistakes but they found that the probability of making a mistake also was much higher in people who were sleep deprived. So uh, overall, I think it's important to understand that if you want to have either an athletic or academic performance that's optimized, you should consider sleep a superpower. Now, there's much, much more data about this for a variety of other topics. And in a future deep dive into sleep, we're going to talk about how you can optimize your sleep. Uh, that's a completely different topic, but um, I think to, to start today, I was trying to convince you that you should consider sleep sacrosanct, which is just mean like make sure you always get your sleep. And I hope we also can learn from, uh, from Queen Elizabeth and her longevity and how it's important to maybe eat an apple, an apple or two a day to help keep the doctor away. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this week's Vitality Explorer news. Uh, we're trying to bring you uh, specific, scientifically valid um, components of the, the world's literature about how to lead your best life. If you're enjoying this, please share it with a friend. Also, please let, leave us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And until next time, please get out there and dare to.